Amen. We may be seated. I should say, actually, that's not a totally new song. We've been doing that a little bit on Wednesday nights with Daniela's help there as well. So the ushers are coming forward. If you have your Bible ready, I hope you do. Please open it up to the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That's where we will begin. The ushers have Bibles for you if you need them. And also an outline that I provided for you. Hopefully that helps you to be able to see my train of thought and where I see the text as taking us. And then also, too, on that outline, there's a, at, the, at the end of it, there's a section of recommended resources that if you want to look into further study for these topics, hopefully those would be a good place to start for you. They were helpful to me, at least. So we're very close to the end of this epistle, uh, to this letter to to the saints in Corinth. And our time this morning is going to be spent considering just two verses. Just two verses for us are in view for this morning. And I do want to get to it. I'm anxious to get to it, but I want to let the ushers continue to pass out their, um, their, the outlines in the Bibles. I have to make my introductions a little bit longer, is what it seems like, actually. <laughs> this would be a good time for me to drink some water, but I, as I said, I am ready to just get right to it. 1 Corinthians 16, chapter 16. <clears throat> Oh, you know what? I could take my watch off right now, too. That's a, we don't need Siri interrupting again. Okay, well, hope that you are ready. We'll read the Word of God, and then after, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time this morning with a brief prayer. So the reading of the Word of God, beginning at verse 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to our hearts. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Our Father in heaven, your word is perfect. And we thank you for all of your word. And we thank you especially for this specific word that we have for us this morning. And we pray, Lord God, that you would give us over to understanding it properly, that you would help us to be sanctified from it, Lord, that you would take this means of grace, which is the preaching of your word, and that you would use it to conform us to Christ and to encourage us in the faith that you have given to us, the faith that was once and for all passed down to all the saints uh, from you, Lord God. We know that it reveals what you desire. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not think man's thoughts after your word, but that we would think your thoughts after your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the the title that I've chosen for this text is Weapons from the Cross. Not the kind of weapons that we might think of normally, like a knife or a sword or a gun, because the battle that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here in this congregation has been a spiritual battle. Those are physical weapons for a physical battle, but we need spiritual weapons for the spiritual battle that we are in. And in this battle that he has been contending for here, in, here with the church in Corinth, uh, it, is, it has the glory of God at stake and even the souls of some who are in the congregation. This passage that we are looking at this morning, though we are isolating it, it, it does not exist in a vacuum. Though we are setting it aside so that we can look to it to hopefully get from it what the Lord wants us to have 
from it, and specifically for us as First Family Church, that it would edify us, the text itself doesn't obviously exist in isolation. This is, in fact, part of the Apostles' closing address to the church here in Corinth. It's the start of it, it would seem. You notice in verse 12, actually, if you're looking at chapter 16 still, he mentions something about Apollos, but it begins with this phrase, now concerning. Uh, this letter, I hope you remember, is the apostle's response to a letter that he had received from them. The apostle had written to them first, probably to encourage them and to admonish them, to set forth from the truths of Scripture, the glories of the gospel, and the goodness of the law. We don't have that letter, of course. It's not part of the Bible. But back in chapter 5, for example, we read that he wrote to them to tell them, you know, not to even associate with anyone who is sexually immoral. And then they wrote back to him after that. They respond to ask a number of questions and about issues that the church is going through. Maybe even to clarify some of the things that he had said first in his original letter to them, this letter that we don't have. And this is a totally normal, normal thing for a church to do, by the way. It would be the same sort of thing that we might do if there were difficult matters that were confusing and dividing our congregation. And if we knew someone that was beloved and influential and trustworthy when it came to the Word of God, uh, that could be a help of us. We would simply ask them for their advice. The Apostle Paul is giving to them help because they requested it and because they need it and because especially he has specific authority as an apostle. Uh, you notice the same start to the sentence as in verse 12 as, back, as you would again in back in verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 16 as well. It starts the very same way, now concerning. There he had some advice to give them about the collection for the saints, which is going to take place for the church in Jerusalem, a church that was experiencing a severe famine at that time. Uh, there uh, he speaks of, in chapter 1, if you remember, he speaks of a report that he received from Chloe's people. And then in chapter 5, in, in shock, and in utter disbelief, he mentions that he has heard a report of immorality that even pagans don't tolerate. And there are four other times, beginning with chapter 7, in which the, the apostle specifically addresses what the Corinthian congregation was wanting to know with that phrase, now concerning. Uh, the last one being verse 12, which we considered in part of the passage from last week. And then the apostle jumps right into what is typical for him in his closing addressed to the churches that he writes to. This is the way he generally ends his letters. Notice the last 12 verses of chapter 16 there in your Bible. They are, they are hortatory remarks. In other words, there are exhortations contained therein. Sometimes there are wishes of peace. There's no wish of peace actually in this letter. But then in verse 19, there is this greeting from his present location with the people that he's with followed by a testimony proving that he himself is the author of, and the sender of this letter. He's the author of the letter under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, as well as the, under guidance of the Holy Spirit in the sending it. And there's a final word of warning, as well as a grace benediction, and lastly, a personal declaration of his love for them, which is especially fitting, I think, and appropriate considering the subject matter he's had to confront at this congregation. This hasn't been an easy letter by any means. And the apostle, the very last thing that he says is that he loves them. In light of all the hard things that he's had to say and that have been said and that have had to have been addressed, he hasn't said these things because he's some jerk or he's some bully just wanting to assert his will. He's done it because he loves them. And so in verse 22 in chapter 16, 
Uh, we really read that for those who truly love the Lord, for those who aren't anathema, who aren't accursed, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with them, we see. And then as well as the apostles' own love for them. Because again, They've had to deal with a lot of difficult subject matter in this congregation. To be clear, they've had to deal with a lot of sin in this congregation. So it seems fitting to me to think then of these exhortations in verse 13 and 14, these five imperatives in 13 and 14, as weapons from the cross. Weapons which are rooted in gospel truth that the saints need in light of the very battles that we have to deal with. They are what we call imperatives, meaning that these are things that we are supposed to do. These five weapons are effort to be put forward by, Christ, by the Corinthians, by us, as we continue to stand in the faith, as the Apostle said at the beginning of chapter 15. And I don't want us to be confused by something very important here, church. You see, before we get to consider these imperatives, these commands, these law statements, really, we need to be clear about our motivation in them. You see, we don't want to confuse our do with the who. Uh, Herman, Herman Ritterboss rightly noted a principle that exists all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, and one that is especially prevalent in the time of the reveal of the covenant of grace revealed, the time of the new covenant, in which our doing always flows out of who we are in Christ. So, so Ritterboss said this specifically, Every imperative of Scripture, in other words, what we are to do for God, rests on the indicative, who we are in our relationship with God, and the order is not reversible. So imperatives in Scripture, like the verbs in 13 and 14, always need to be understood in light of who we are in Christ. And indicatives are those texts in Scripture which tell us who we are in Christ. Those texts which tell us what Yahweh has done, what He is doing, what He will do, His promises to us. Those texts that comfort us and have our assurance and our strength rooted in God Himself, not the things that we do. And it's very important to keep these distinctions, beloved. In other words, we aren't doing these things or any imperative in Scripture in order to be saved or in order to keep ourselves in a state of salvation. Not at all. Not even in the slightest. We need to be clear about that. It is Christ and His righteousness alone that saves us. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is His active and His passive obedience that is legally accredited to us at our regeneration, which enables us to have boldness and access with confidence to the throne of grace. It is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to take people who are by nature children of wrath, and to make them alive, to give us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out to, our, to God as our Father. We pray to the Father. That, that's miraculous that we're able to do that. It's an amazing blessing that we can do that. He takes people who hated, and loved, or who, hey, who hated the light and loved the dark, and he makes us to be lovers of the light, which is Christ. And so we obey because God has loved us and united himself to us by his son. And we are not united to God, nor do we make him love us because we have obeyed him. Our obedience flows out of who he is and what he has done. Our obedience is a response to his love, not a purchase of it. And we need to be aware of this distinction. And I would prefer it, actually, if you were familiar, familiar with this distinction in the old Reformed way of talking about it, because it's a bit clearer, I think, because it uses scriptural terms and not linguistic ones. And that is this. You've heard me mention it before. The, the law-gospel distinction. That law and gospel are, dis are distinct. Not opposed to each other, but they're distinct. In other words, there are some passages of God's holy word which tells us what to do. They are law, and they're good. 
they show us what is right and how to live in the will of God. They show us the righteous requirements of God and remind us of our need of the gospel for grace and forgiveness. And gospel texts tell us what God has done. They tell us of his redemptive purposes, his promises, his character, his nature, his will to save and redeem, his message of it is done. They are gospel. They're good news. And if by grace we distinguish these in our minds consistently, then we'll live more joyfully, more free, and more confident in Christ. Because we understand that the reason we obey is based upon God's gracious provision to us in the gospel. The reason we worship in the way that we do, at the times that we do, in the, in the way that he tells us to, is because God's gracious provision to us in the gospel. Those things don't justify us. We do them because we've been justified. For the Christian, motivation for imperatives flows out of and are based on indicatives. For the Christian, lawful obedience flows out of and is based on gospel promises applied to us. And the apostle has been driving these things home throughout this whole epistle. Early on in the letter, it was that the cross of Christ was his boast. He had no other boast but the cross of Christ. More recently in chapter 15, he reminds us of the gospel before he defends the resurrection because understanding the resurrection truly is a gospel issue. It tells us what God has done, not what we do, but what God has done and what we get from it. Uh, listen to the Second London Baptist Confession here on the law and gospel distinction. This is from chapter 19, article 6. And it says, True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to them and, and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. So our relationship to the law, which these last five imperatives in 13 and 14 consist in, we are not justified or condemned in them by doing them good enough or by not doing them good enough. But they are useful for us to know our Christian duty and the will of God. In other words, they inform us on how to live in the will of God in a way that pleases God. Article 6 explains those things further, but let me skip to Article 7, and I'll read the whole thing because it's short. Article 7 in chapter 19 in the Second London Confession says, These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God has revealed and what the law requires. So you, you see the relationship between the law and gospel, I hope, between imperative and indicative. Because the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, there is a sweet harmony between law and gospel for the Christian. We don't do lawful things in order to be saved, but because the Spirit of Christ has subdued and enabled our wills, in other words, out of the work that God, has, that God does in us, we then operate and desire to do what God wills for us to do. We want to do those right things. If this isn't clear yet, let me give you an example right out of the Word of God that I think will make it clear. I think of the letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. It's a wonderful letter. I preached through it a few years back on our Wednesday uh, student ministry service. The Sunday school has been going through it now, verse by verse, for a while now. I think it started pre-COVID, you know, the good old times, in other words. And it's, it's been a while since you guys have been in the early chapters in Sunday school. But you might remember that the first three chapters are, for the most part, dedicated to explaining what God has done. 
You have the glorious beginning in chapter 1 that is 12 verses long, but only one sentence in the Greek. There is the, that gospel hinge near the start of chapter 2 that reads, you know, but God. And then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he goes to explain the mystery of the gospel and the union people have with Christ in the new covenant. But then in chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 6, for the most part, it's a series of law. It's a series of do this and don't do that. Uh, and then in chapter 6, our call to worship passage this morning, there is instruction to put on the armor of God, those gospel truths that are needed in our spiritual battles. But notice the order. He's writing to Christians, to believers, and he first mentions the encouragements of the gospel. The first three chapters are taken up with encouragements of the gospel before he instructs how we should live in the last three chapters because how we live flows out of the gospel. This is so key to our Christian lives. Our do flows out of the who. And so these five commands, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love, they are weapons from the cross. They are actions that flow out of what God has done for us. They flow from, and they are a response to the cross of Christ and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And they are the very means by which the Christian church is to be guarded against and to deal with the sins and division that made up the first 15 chapters. I listed them there for you on your outline. But the church in every age will need to do these five things to be prepared for the spiritual battles before us as well. Much of the sins in the Corinthian church are of the same kind or even of the exact same sin that we are battling today. Our culture is actively against the church today. The state, which we, I think we would rightly understand is the beast described in Revelation, is actively against the church today as they seek to pass and approve of increasingly wicked activity. And certainly, the greatest battle before the church in our age and in every age, I think, and he, at this time in between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, are, is going to be with those who claim to be part of the faith and yet are not. And so these five weapons, these five commands, they'll serve Christ's people well in the face of such opposition. Uh, commentator Brian Rosner notes, the first four of Paul's five exhortations in a row all reflect the kinds of things a general might say to his troops before they enter into battle. And we need to be reminded, church, that we are in a battle. We are not yet in glory, of course. This is not the new heavens and the new earth that will exist when Christ comes again. And until that time, the world, the flesh, and the devil will need to be contended with. So let's just consider these in order. Number one, be watchful. Uh, the first weapon that we are to take up is the command to be watchful. Christians are to be alert, or they're to be on the alert. We aren't at a place in which we could just be totally relaxed, as if there are no enemies outside of us, or, or as if our flesh isn't often looking for opportunities to satisfy its desires. John Calvin notes here, For as the warfare is incessant, the watching requires to be incessant too. It's a plea here to stay awake, to not be woke. That This kind of awakeness would actually guard against wokeness even, because ultimately, it's a plea to continually to look to Jesus. Not the Jesus of the liberals and the progressives, but the Jesus who is actually revealed in the scriptures. And the specific term that the apostle uses here is one that is familiar in the New Testament. It's used 22 times in total. The gospel authors record Jesus using it. The apostle Paul uses it many times. Peter uses it. John uses it. Most often, though, the word is used with a specific aspect of eschatology. 
urging a disposition of watchfulness in light of the Lord's return. That would make sense here, I think, coming off of chapter 15, in which the apostle defends the resurrection. And of course, the resurrection in Christ, or the resurrection of Christ, implies and entails his coming again. The Gospel of Matthew records Jesus using it six times himself, three times in Matthew 24 and 25 when he is explaining the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then the parables about the parousia, the second coming. And his point in these examples are that Christians should maintain by grace a careful vigilance in anticipation of his acting, of his revealing, and of his coming. And so at the end of the parable of the ten virgins, that's the one where the five let their lamp go out. He says this in Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. Watch, therefore. Same word as 1 Corinthians 16. Watch, in the Greek even. Now, this doesn't mean that we are supposed to be like looking at the world around us. And then we should be looking for in the news clips and on, on TV and on YouTube about prophecy being fulfilled because the Lord is going to be coming at, at any moment. Or you're not looking for his signs of his return in that regard. That's not the point of being watchful in this sense. What it means, though, is that we should live as if, he, as if his coming could happen at any moment. In other words, we should live in such a way that we are resting in gospel promises and pursuing holiness. And when he comes, that's what it means to be watchful. And when he comes, don't we want to be found waiting and watching for him, focused on him, worshiping him as he desires to be worshiped, depending upon him for all things, being satisfied in him no matter what we have or what we don't have? Who is there that loves the Lord and wouldn't want that? I mean, if you're still in 1 Corinthians 16, should be, notice what is the, the warning down in verse 22. Notice the very end of it. Right after saying that those who are in the church and who don't love the Lord should be accursed, he says, O Lord, come. That's where we get that term Maranatha from. We should live as if the Lord will come at any moment because we want, and we want to be found living rightly when he comes. That's what it means to be watchful. But the odds are somewhat high that he won't come in our lifetime. Perhaps he will. I don't know. But I mean, he hasn't consummated the kingdom in the last 2,000 years. And nevertheless, every Christian in every previous generation would benefit and has been right to be watchful in this regard. Looking at Jesus, looking to Jesus. That's the right thing to do. He will come again. And until that day, we need to be watchful, looking to Christ, meaning pursuing holiness and reminding ourselves of the gospel the whole way, rehearsing the gospel to ourselves throughout the day. Imagine if by grace we devoted ourselves to doing those things for 30 years straight, taking advantage of every means of grace, rightly observing the Lord's day. By the way, you could go on to our podcasting side or our iTunes and listen. We just had two sermons recently on the fourth commandment on the Lord's day. I would encourage you to listen to those. And at the end of those 30 years, Christ hasn't come back yet. Would we think we wasted our time for doing those things? Would we be, would being watchful in that regard have been a waste if Christ didn't return, even though we were instructed to be watchful in light of his coming? Certainly not. No, we would have done simply what we were compelled to do because Christ first loved us. So we should be watchful in light of the Lord's return. There are also practical holiness reasons why we should be watchful. 
Jesus uses the same expression three times in Matthew 26 in the garden when he's praying right before he's about to be betrayed. And he says to the disciples in verse 38, he says, My soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Same Greek word. In other words, be on the alert. Stay awake. There he is talking about practical and prayerful watchfulness, staying awake and being alert in the face of danger, that, a danger that they didn't see coming, even though he warned them about it multiple times. They would, this, I think, would have wide application in our Christian lives. He even says a few verses later, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, same word for watch there. And how often would you say temptation is before you, brother or sister Christian? I mean, could you relax on watching and praying in the face of temptation? Is it around you once a year, once a week, a few times a day, every single moment? Uh, let me ask you, are you ever separated from your flesh? Or is it always with you? It's always with you, isn't it? And it's true that we are a new creation in Christ, that our nature is being renewed day by day, and we're being conformed to Christ. Yet nevertheless, until we shed these earthly bodies, as the apostle mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, we will still struggle against the flesh. And so we should watch for those sins which would entangle us. We should watch for those habits that have us to be caught up in sin, and then because by grace that we are watching, we're able to forsake them. It's interesting, too, that Jesus, Jesus associated watchfulness and prayer. Again, remember, watchfulness at its basis level is being disposed to looking to Christ in light of his second coming. And prayer, of course, for us would be in Christ and is made a reality in our lives because of Christ's atoning work having been applied to us. Saved people pray, in other words. Uh, that's why we have a time of silent prayer before communion even, because only those who are saved are supposed to be coming forward to the Lord's table, and so they should be able to pray. And so think, if we are being watchful and then guarded against temptation, what is our response when we're tempted? What is the response of the Christian in that moment? Is it, it's to go to the Lord in prayer to petition Him for help and the strength that we need in those times. Maybe even a simple prayer like, Lord, help me. Lord Jesus, remind me that you're better and more satisfying than insert whatever temptation it is. Being watchful speaks to our practical holiness. Now, this probably isn't going to be a shock to anyone here, but it does shock the world and the unregenerate. But that is this. Now, Christians are not to indulge their sin. They're not to indulge what God has deemed as sin. We're not to let sin reign free in our lives. We, through prayer, repent of sin. We turn from it and turn to Christ, which again, the point of being watchful, to look to Christ. The, the Apostle Peter seems to tie all of these things together, both eschatological reasons and practical reasons, which would even impact our praying when he writes. If you turn over and keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, 7. There he writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know, it is by the grace of Christ that we're not hypocrites when we pray. That when we pray, we know the Lord hears us because he has made us his sons and daughters. But we can sometimes pray hypocritically as a believer. That's true. But being watchful, knowing that the Lord will have us live in a right way in light of his return, and in view of a practical holiness, helps us to offer prayer with a clear conscience. 
a conscience purified by the blood of our Savior. So, so again, it, it helps with practical holiness. There's one more category of watchfulness that the Apostle Paul would certainly have in mind here, and this would be for doctrinal reasons. At, at multiple levels, the Corinthian congregation had battles with maintaining sound doctrine. Their doctrine concerning the spiritual gifts had, and the complexity of it spanned three chapters. But most importantly, the doctrine of the resurrection, which some of the congregation were denying, was going to clearly shipwreck the faith. Remember what the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, none of it matters if there is no resurrection of Christ. If we hold to a doctrine that says Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. There are doctrinal reasons why we must be watchful. This is not new for us, church. We know doctrine matters. Doctrine is important. Doctrine is very much so the difference between life and death. What you believe, who you believe matters. And we need to pay attention. We need to be alert about the doctrine that we believe and what we are being told to believe. We need to listen well when we're in church and reading the Bible, and at all times, really. We need to fight that, distract, that urge to be distracted. We need to fight that distraction, to be, or that urge to be tired. We are to be mature so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, as the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus. In a similar vein of thought, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to watch your life and doctrine closely because his salvation and the salvation of those that he's evangelizing are in the balance. Now remember, this isn't some works principle here. We can't confuse our do with our who, right? But if one's life doesn't match this exhortation for him to watch his life and doctrine carefully. If one's life doesn't match the description set forth in the word of a person on the narrow way, a life of right worship, pursuing holiness and repentance, and if their doctrine doesn't match the description of sound words set forth in Scripture, then salvation would be in the balance, as the Apostle notes. Because both of those points both hinge upon who Christ is, what he has done, and if he has applied it to your life. The word watch in 1 Timothy 4 is actually not the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 16, but the same kind of idea is being expressed. He's telling them to pay attention to his life and doctrine. Different word, but very similar meaning. And it's not easy to always pay attention. You, by grace, have to work on it. I have six kids. Sometimes I think that what I say to them bounces off the ear and then immediately rockets into the heavens. It just happens like that. But we should wonder... How many professing Christians really care about this? How many care to be doctrinal? How many care to watch their doctrine? Corrosive and false doctrine does great damage in a church body. See Corinth. I mean, that's what we're reading about. Uh, see the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and the addresses that he has to them. See the majority of evangelicalism today. It is popular in our culture today, which is just so soft on so many things overall, and enamored with like post-postmodernism and secular humanism ideals running rampant, not just in the culture, but in the church, to downplay doctrine, to minimize doctrinal distinctives. The common idea or the, or the common reason for this that I hear about in the church, so we are told, is that this is done because, you know, doctrine divides. And everyone, you know, essentially they needs to sing Kumbaya because love wins anyways. And that's what we're told. So just forget about doctrine. 
Uh, you could test this, by the way. Pick any city and just Google churches in the city. And then look at their websites and try to find their doctrinal statements. Do it with 20 churches. You'll find some good ones when you do that, but I tell you, you will find many that seem like they couldn't be any more brief if they were trying to be brief concerning doctrine. And it is becoming increasingly popular to not even post doctrinal statements at all, yet they have all kinds of other pragmatic information available for you to find out about them. Doctrinal convictions seem to just be totally absent from so many websites. Some churches might actually hide them under a heading called core values or something like that, and then they're still very brief and small. But doctrine and watching and the watching of doctrine in much of the church seems to be absent and across the spectrum of evangelicalism in our culture today. And the ironic, really the tragic thing about this really, is that doctrine does not divide. Doctrine, in fact, unites. It unites around the truth. Sound doctrine protects. Sound doctrine strengthens. If you remember from 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul said that he had heard that there were divisions in the church. And he said that there must be these divisions, the reason being so that those who were genuine could be known. Those who were genuinely saved, in other words. And so there were these people who were divided over practice, which always, and I don't care what anyone says here, this is always true, practice flows out of doctrine. What we do comes from what we believe. Again, we need to have our do and our who right, right? It's the same thing. And the New Testament is abundantly clear, friends, that false teachers and false doctrines will come against the church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. And I'll just make some comments as we read through this section of Scripture. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. This is Luke's recording of those events that were happening there. In verse 28... <clears throat> Oops, that's 19. And in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention. Watch, in other words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church. Is caring a loving thing or a mean thing? It's a loving thing, right? He's instructing them on how to be loving, rightly. It says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, knowing that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's not talking about some animal planet thing here. Fierce wolves is a known metaphor for false teachers, people who would bring destruction and damage to Christ's church. And then verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They're, they're, not, they're not watching their doctrine. And so they teach things that they don't believe and they're being pulled away to go somewhere else. And so we can say safely, you know, that they weren't watching their doctrine. Then verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. See again, it's a caring and a loving thing to be concerned about our doctrine and how it impacts the church. Or how about 1 Peter 5? Let's turn to 1 Peter 5. Near the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Some things right away we should notice. Sober-mindedness, we saw that emphasized already in, in, in light of watching. And there's the exhortation that we're considering now especially, be watchful. That's the same word and construct as it's used in 1 Corinthians 16. And look at the reason for being sober-minded and watchful. The devil is looking to devour us. There's more than one way that this could be done, but think through this with me. How did the devil seek to devour Adam and Eve? What, what did he do there? Did he burn the trees in the garden down? No, right? He caused them to doubt what God had said. He went after doctrine, didn't he? Or how about with Jesus? After the Spirit led him to the wilderness as the second Adam or the greater Israel to be tempted by the devil. The second temptation from the devil was involving the twisting of Scripture. But with all three temptations, how did Jesus respond? What did he use? He used the word of the Lord. He used Scripture. He, he held to the pattern of sound words. He didn't depart from it. Doctrine matters. Satan is the father of lies. And one of the ways this exhibits itself is through corrosive and deadly doctrine. So this is a word with doctrinal, practical, and eschatological overtones. And Paul clearly has all these things in mind as, as he gives this message to the Corinthians. Stay on guard. Enemies of the truth are already in your midst. Be alert. Be watchful. The Lord will come at his time. And being watchful is a weapon in your spiritual battle. The apostle has another weapon for the church in Corinth, and it's related to this first one, especially the last category, and so it is to stand firm in the faith. This is something that the Corinthians were struggling to do, and the apostle needs to remind them of this command. This is something that many today seem to struggle to do, and so we need to take it to heart as well. And he's echoing something that he's already said, by the way. Look at the end of chapter 15. If we go back in 1 Corinthians 16. If you look at the end of chapter 15 in verse 58... He's reemphasizing an important and encouraging point he's already made. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And let's be honest here. Steadfast immovability is a character trait, is a virtue trait, that for many in our culture today is actually a heresy. It's for many who even profess Christ today to be the, the heresy of heresies. Standing firm in the faith will get you to be called a bigot today. You'll be labeled as backwards and judgmental simply because you have a standard, a standard built upon what God says and who is the only one with a right to make such a standard in the first place. What people value today is uncertainty. They value doubt. They value skepticism. They value relativism because ultimately they want to do away with any notion of the truth because Christ is the truth. Amen. A lack of conviction seems to be the new humility for so many in the evangelical church. Strong convictions, the very thing that the Apostle Paul calls for here, are out. And if you undergo, or if you don't undergo some kind of major paradigm shift in your theology or in your worldview every few years or so, you're not only labeled as being hopelessly behind the times, but you're even on the wrong side of history. I mean, consider J.K. Rowling and how, she, how the left has treated her, and she's on the left herself. If you're not consistently moving left these days, you may as well be moving right, according to this liberal, progressive, postmodern mindset that we have going on in our culture and in our churches right now. And this is why, according to progressive progressive postmodern way of thinking, certainty is to be avoided at all, at all costs, which is self-defeating, right? Are you certain that you want to avoid certainty all the time? It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, diversity is to be cultivated no matter what, and tolerance means never having to have any idea, no matter how far saying that is, tolerance is saying that any idea, no matter how far-fetched it is, is actually wrong. 
That's the new humility for postmodern progressives, it would seem. But listen, that's not humility. That's sin. That's unbelief. We're to do the opposite of that. We're to stand firm in the faith. If we, if we were to listen to so-called progressive Christianity or liberal Christianity, the worst thing we could do is to be certain or dogmatic about something, about anything. And I want us to be thinking of the church primarily, so I'll define progressive Christianity in just a moment here. But isn't that the same mindset that the world has today as well? The world is progressive. And it's the world seeping into the church that we see today, sadly. The world would have you to believe that you can't be certain, that you can be certain about nothing. Science seems to have had its definition changed since, when, since from when I was a young boy. Uh, some have gone as far as saying that two plus two doesn't always equal four. They would have you to believe that sexual preference is a choice, that sex exists on a fluid scale or a spectrum greater than male or female, that a person can be married to the same sex or even an inanimate object, that life in the womb isn't, a, isn't precious in, in the sight of the Lord if the mother says so, and on and on. And of course, standing firm in the faith would speak to all of those things, wouldn't it? I mean, life in the womb is precious to the Lord and abortion is murder. There are only two sexes, two genders, and God designed them in such a way that they complement each other and share a unique covenantal unity in marriage. A marriage can only be, be, can only be between a, ma a male and a female. And sex, male or female, is assigned at birth at the chromosome level, with the rare exception of like hermaphrodite, but that's not what they're meaning to say anyways. But this is the same so-called progressive worldview has infiltrated the church and is growing, and we need to be aware of it. Progressive Christianity, as defined by its adherents, is characterized by a willingness to question tradition, acceptance of human diversity, a strong emphasis on social justice and care for the poor and the oppressed, and environmental stewardship of the earth. Now, some of those things sound good, but what you have to see is that they really aren't concerned with the gospel at all. And when they speak about the gospel or when they mention Christian doctrines, you have to understand that even though they are using the same words, they're not meaning the same thing. And they're concerned with having your best life now with social justice. It's a social gospel at its heart, which is no gospel, of course. There's a congregation that in name bears the name of Christ and yet stands in opposition to Christ at nearly every turn. They're called Bethel Church and they're located in Oregon. I'm just going to read a few things from their website. Not everything on, from their website, but just something that stands out. You could go to their website if you like and look. If, if you did, you would see some things that sound good. But again, you need to remember that the words they're using might be the same words as us, but they're not meaning the exact same things as us. They're not believing the same things that the orthodox, the sound doctrinally church has believed for the last 2,000 years. And so the types of things that they say, these are the types of things that any progressive uh, Christian would adhere to. So what I, some of the things that I read, they said, we see ourselves as a church of firsts. The first mainline church to ordain a woman in 1853. The first church to ordain an openly gay man, 1972. The first to publish a hymnal that honors in equal measure both male and female images of God in 1995. The first to call for marriage equality for the LGBTQ community, 2005. They probably need to update that. They need to keep up with the, the leftist progression because there's way more numbers and letters that need to be attached to that. In a, in a section entitled The Origin of Progressive Christianity, they say, in keeping with our reformed and reforming identity, again, you know, they use the similar words to us, but they mean different things. They say, we have embraced a movement that began in 2006 called Progressive Christianity. This, the movement was a part of a larger movement called the Emerging Church. Some of you may remember what that is or heard about that. At the heart of these movements was the desire to articulate a way of being Christian that was alternative to the Christian faith portrayed in the public realm. So in other words, not standing firm in the faith, 
right? This is something new. And then they list a number of ways which they refer to their faith negatively. They admit they don't like to do this. I think it's because it shows their cards plainly, and so they would rather stick with accepted Christian language all the while redefining its meaning. But here's the list. This is what they say, uh, what it means to be a progressive Christian. We aren't fundamentalists. We don't believe the Bible is the inerrant or infallible word of God. We don't agree that creationism should replace the science of evolution in, a public, in public schools. We don't believe that God hates gays. What they mean by that is they don't believe that being gay is a sin. We don't believe that people of other faiths are going to hell unless they convert to Christianity. We don't deny the right of women to choose what happens to their bodies. And of course, by that they mean the bodies of their babies, not the bodies of the women themselves. Friends, that is what it looks like to not stand firm on the faith. This, this progressive Christianity. And there's something else that you need to be aware of too because it's becoming increasingly popular. It's really it's the stillborn child of progressive Christianity. And that's called deconstructionism. It's becoming increasingly popular today for normal, everyday churchgoers, as well as for high-profile Christians, to abandon the faith and identify themselves as ex-evangelical. They have, quote, deconstructed, and they tend to brag about this. A deconstructionism is a modern postmodern philosophy. It's built off of Nietzsche's, who's that great atheist, right? His idea that says there's no such thing as facts, just interpretations. And so when you apply that to Christianity, what you have is people who are saying that they are evaluating what they have been taught before, and they are doubting what they have been taught before. But when you really listen to them, what they're actually doing is dismissing the faith. They are dismissing what God's word says. Because according to them, there are more desirable interpretations. What it really is, is apostasy. And I'm not saying that to stand firm in the faith means that you can never change your views on anything or something like that. That's not true at all. We are constantly being sanctified as believers. I don't believe everything that I used to believe 20 years ago when, when, I, when it comes to Christianity. I remember reading Holiness by R.C. Sprawl about 17 years ago, and that changed so much for me. I don't remember... I don't believe everything that I believed 10 years ago, even. That is just a normal part of, the, of Christian growth. The post-Reformation reformers would say, Ecclesia Reformata Sempor Reformanda, which means the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. And that's the key, because whereas progressive Christianity and deconstructionism look to change, they don't look to change according to the word of God. And note again what the command here is from the Apostle Paul. Stand firm in the faith. Where do we learn of the faith? Jude has something to tell us. It's Jude 3. Uh, he says, Beloved, I was eager, very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary, though, to write to you, to appeal to you, to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Even in Jude's day, it was already necessary to stand firm in the faith. And notice what the faith is. It's the faith, not our personal faith, although that could have some meaning here, but the faith, which is shorthand for the doctrines contained in Scripture. It's the Old Testament. And I'm sure Jude would agree here that it should also include the New Testament as well, since he, although he was living in the time when the New Testament was being revealed. It's the teaching of the apostles and the prophets delivered to the saints, the church. And we're to stand firm in it, not to doubt it, but we should actually doubt our doubts. We should be like the man who prayed, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Because when we stand firm in the faith, what we are saying is that here is the faith and here am I. I'm under it. When we challenge it, when we doubt it, when we're taught to be skeptical of it, what we're saying is here is the faith and here am I. 
I'm the one who's judging it. But the reality is that Scripture reads us. All Scripture is God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3 notes. So in a very real sense, it's the Scriptures that are exposing us. Let's turn to Psalm 1, okay? Because this is significant. This is a well-known psalm, so you might already know where I am going with this. <clears throat> We're thinking of this in light of one who is said to stand firm in the faith versus one who does not. So Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The man of God... Is, and woman of God, is supposed to be like a tree planted by rivers of water, steadfast, immovable, growing in steady, constant fashion, bearing fruit rather than not having any root and being blown away, tossed to and fro. And Christ Jesus, of course, he's the blessed man of Psalm 1. He's the one who did live like that, and he redeemed us. And now he serves as our model of what to do. Again, we can't confuse our do with our who. We do stand firm because of who Christ is. We are to be firm like the tree of Psalm 1, but because it's because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. This is what the Apostle Paul is arguing for us to have here. A groundedness in the faith, a sense of conviction and assurance in the word, immovability when it comes to the truth. And that sort of mentality was not easy for the church in Corinth. It's not easy for people in our day either. But it's an important weapon from the cross that we're to take up. Listen to what Charles Hodge says here. Do not consider every point of doctrine an open question. Matters of faith, doctrines for which you have a clear revelation of God, such, for examples, as the doctrine of the resurrection, are to be considered settled, and as among Christians, no longer matters of dispute. There are doctrines embraced in the creeds of all Orthodox churches, so clearly taught in Scripture, that it is not only useless, but hurtful to be willing always to call them into question. Stand firm in the faith, the Apostle Paul says. And if you're tempted to appease the culture and leave some wiggle room for them to insert doubt and skepticism there, since that's the way you do things in 2022... We need to repent of that attitude and ask God to give you more conviction and more courage. And that takes us to the third of the series of imperatives. Act like men. Now, if there was ever a phrase that our culture, our postmodern and progressive culture would take offense to, it is this one. I mean, we could potentially have a judge on the Supreme Court that would fumble horribly on defining what a man is. And I don't say that actually to be funny, although there have been a lot of good memes over the week. And sometimes humor and sarcasm are a proper and biblical way to expose foolishness. Just ask Elijah, right? I mean, who wondered if, if Baal was on the toilet when his prophets couldn't get him to respond? But in seriousness, we need to pray for Kentaji Brown Jackson, as the Word of God instructs us to. Because you need to understand, she knows what a woman is. She is one after all. But it's her religion that prevents her from answering that question like a normal, rational human being. This progressive movement that is both in the world and in the church, it is a religion. It has its own rules. It has its own system of membership, its doctrines. Please be noticing these things, brothers and sisters. But nevertheless, this is the command from God's word to the church in Corinth. And in every age, in light of the spiritual battles that we will be facing. 
It's very plain to him. To them. Act like a man. What that means is that the Word of God recognizes some virtues that are masculine, and that would mean that there are others that are distinctly feminine. That doesn't mean there's, any over, there's not any overlap in these categories, but simply that they exist, which, again, our, our culture just rejects. There are certain things that we would expect of a man that maybe we wouldn't expect in a woman, and we wouldn't fault a woman for not displaying these virtues. Although here in the context of 1 Corinthians 16, the apostle is speaking to the whole church, which would be made up of men and women. And so he's calling even women here to behave with the same virtue that is naturally expected of a man here. Now we should be clear, Corinth was an effeminate culture. There's a big part of evangelicalism that is effeminate as well. But the apostle's point here isn't to simply contrast masculinity with femininity. Both masculinity and femininity are femininity are the Lord are good from the they're from the Lord and they are good when viewed in step with the faith, and you know um, that thing that we're supposed to stand firm in, of course. But he's also contrasting it with a childlikeness, and likewise, there's nothing wrong with acting like a child if you're a child. It's okay. That's part of the reason why we don't lose it in here when children are fussy or they walk around because they're just acting like a child. It's a normal thing to do. So the apostle is thinking also about maturity here as well. Literally, the Greek here could be translated to play the man or a more modern way of saying it, man up. And so what this word, what this weapon from the cross is getting at here is a position of courage, of courageousness. It's not, you know, smoke cigars, wrestle your buddies and drink beer. Those are just things, but the biblical, they're not the biblical notion of what it means to be a man. What the apostle is getting at here is a virtue of courageousness. Denny Burke says it calls for readers to put away whatever inhibitions or fears they might have about doing something and then to just do it. It's about being bold and brave, even in the face of opposition and danger. To have a demeanor that doesn't back down in the face of diversity. That's what being a man here is. Denny Burke has a good analogy to illustrate this. This is what he says. He says, imagine standing on the high dive at the public swimming pool. I remember doing this in Concord as a, as a youth. Uh, you walk slowly out to the edge, and when you see how far down it is, your stomach catches up to your throat. You're staring down, trying to figure out whether you're actually going to go through with the long drop, and you're taking so long that the line of people behind you is getting impatient, and someone yells, come on, man up. They see your apprehension and fear, and, and they are telling you to get over it and to get on with it. And so what do you do? Well, you man up and you jump. Now, I wonder if there are any women here who today are thinking, well, I can jump from the high dive and I'm not scared. And so that's great. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, but I would be cautious of thinking that just because a woman can do this and does do that, that we should also say the phrase woman up here in a context like this, because that would be missing the point of what biblical masculinity is supposed to capture. And that is a sense of strength and courage, not stupidity and delusion, but strength and courage in the fear of God. Women can be courageous, and the Apostle Paul is saying here that women need to be if they're to accomplish the end that he has in view. But this is a distinct characteristic of masculinity. It's interesting, actually. This phrase is only mentioned here in the New Testament. We don't read it in the Old Testament either. And some have accused us of being mistranslated because of that. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Old Testament, we do see this phrase three different times. It's always included with the fourth imperative in the text as well. In Psalm 27, 14, Psalm 31, 24, and 2 Samuel 10, 12, we see the phrase, be strong and take courage, or some variation therein. In both the psalmist accounts, it's in the context of dealing with life's troubles, of dealing with life's adversaries. In 2 Samuel, it's within the context of Joab splitting his army and encouraging the other army for the battle that they're about to have. 
And that would mean that the context of how this is used in the Old Testament is the same way the Apostle Paul is thinking of it here as well. Because remember, the context is militant. This is spiritual warfare that the church is in. This is, a, is first a call to arms and a summons to battle. These are weapons from the cross. And so Paul says, fight like men. Defend the faith in a manly way. Don't back down from the false teachers. Don't back down to avoid a confrontation with those who would undermine God's word and deny the resurrection. Don't be afraid to say that something is sin, even if the world um, refuses to realize that it is in fact sin. And this applies to every Christian. Yes, even the women in Corinth need to cultivate the strength and fortitude of a warrior, like, like Deborah in the book of Judges, perhaps. But if this applies to everyone in the church, we should note that it is a particular duty of men to be spiritual leaders in the church, and to model this spirit of courage and steadfast boldness. We shouldn't leave it to the women to do, brothers. They need to do it as well, but by God's grace, we should be examples in this regard. And it's good to see that despite how confused our culture gets, God's not confused. And Scripture is not afraid to speak stereotypically, stereotypically about the natural connection between masculine strength and courage. It's normal to do so. And that brings us to the fourth weapon. I'll move kind of quick through these last two. It's be strong. There also needs to be a certain strength associated with the Christian life. If you will be courageous, and you can be courageous because of what Christ has done, well then it also has to be mingled with strength to be able to endure whatever would come against you. That's, that's why this phrase from the previous imperative was always partnered with strength in the Old Testament. I mean, just think of what these Corinthians would need strength for. Is it going to be easy to confront people on making factions with their celebrity you know, pastor, speaker? Do you think that they will be able to walk up to the people who are convinced that there is no resurrection and just tell them, hey, the Apostle Paul said you're wrong, and then they're just going to stop at that point? You know, imagine if the ones distributing the letter were from the group that factioned with Paul and they gave it to people in the other factions that denied the resurrection. Not that Jesus or Apollos or Peter denied the resurrection, but we know how sinful hearts work. It's highly doubtful that if that's the case, or in any case, they would just receive the letter as it is and that would be it. They would have to theologically fight it out. If we're going to be courageous for Christ, that means that we also need to have thick skin. We can't let things get to us. We need to know that Christ is our Lord and He is on, our, on His throne no matter what happens. We need to have a, that patient endurance that Christ speaks of in Revelation for those who overcome in Christ. You need to be able to deal with name-calling, with antagonism, with contempt, possibly even with physical abuse. Just think of how the majority of the prophets in the Old Testament were treated for doing what was a main part of their prophetic ministry, correcting and calling out sin. Really, these weapons of the cross are all found in the job description of the prophet in the Old Covenant all the way through John the Baptizer. And don't forget about Jesus himself. Jesus himself warned that strength would be necessary. Look at John 15. Back to the New Testament if you were in Psalm still. John 15, 18 to 20. Here Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now listen, it's not your own strength that enables you to do this, to endure the kind of things that even came to our Lord himself. Uh, we, we don't hear these words from Jesus and think to ourselves, you know, I got this. I can do this all by myself. And it's not even physical strength, right? It, this is a spiritual battle that we're in. It's a strength from the Lord that we depend on. Remember, we need to distinguish between the do and the who. We are to do this, and even more, we only will do this because the, the 
strength that Christ applies to us. Colossians 1.10 to 11. I'll just read this for you myself. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience and joy. It's strength from the Lord that we are given. It's not our own strength that we are to be dependent upon in these times. Jonathan Edwards has a very good way of explaining Christian strength, so I'll just read this. He says, Many persons seem to be quite mistaken concerning the nature of Christian fortitude, which means strength. Tis an exceeding diverse thing from a brutal fierceness or the boldness of beasts of prey. True Christian fortitude consists in strength of mind through grace exerted in two things, in ruling and suppressing the evil, in unruly passion and affections of the mind, and in steadfastly and freely exerting and following good affections and dispositions without being hindered by sinful fear or the opposition of enemies. The strength of the good soldier of Jesus Christ appears in nothing more than in steadfastly maintaining the holy, calm, meekness, sweetness, and benevolence of his mind admits all the storms, injuries, and strange behavior and surprising acts and events of evil in this, in, in this unreasonable world. And that's the kind of quote that gets you to highlight half the page. But, it's, but that's Christian strength. A strength that flows out of who Christ is and what he has done. And one that we would say emulates the strength that Christ displayed during his incarnation while he was on the earth before the cross, in other words. That is a needed weapon in our spiritual battle that we have afforded to us in the gospel. And now for this last weapon of the cross... I only want to mention a couple things here because this topic is already germane to our discussion. We know that the apostles sent this letter to Cor- back in Corinth. They weren't going to take 80 or 81 Lord's Days to go through this whole letter. Not that that's a bad thing or anything. It's good to do verse-by-verse exposition, but sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees in doing so. But certainly for Corinth, they would be arriving at these words here in chapter 16 with fresh in their minds what we would call 1 Corinthians 13. They would remember clearly that if they were listening well and with faith of the preeminence of love, of the necessity of love, that if they have many other good things but they lack love, they are in fact useless. In fact, if they had been doing what verse 14 instructs, to let all that they do to be done in love, then all of the sin that had been tolerated and the divisions that existed wouldn't even exist. There's a failure at the fundamental level for this Corinthian congregation, and the same would be true in any congregation that is failing and neglecting to contend against the flesh and the world and the devil. And further, that means that the previous four imperatives, they also need to be done in love. Verse 14 in no way cancels out verse 13. Rather, it establishes it. If some of the recipients of this letter were to approach church members with hate and disdain and annoyance in their hearts, it would take away from the good things that, they were, that have already been mentioned. It would most likely lead to more division. And that's not the ultimate goal here. The main goal here is reconciliation. It's for those who are sinning in Corinth to repent and to start to pursue what is right and good. And if it doesn't happen, well, God is sovereign and his will be done. But we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, brothers and sisters, not the ministry of being a jerk. How we do what we do matters. And you need to be aware too, beloved, that you live in a world that loves to combat righteousness by saying that your tone is wrong. The progressive, the deconstruction crew, they employ full-time tone police with benefits. But I heard Vody Bauckham say recently, very astutely as well, in a lot of our passage this morning, that the tone they actually hate is manliness. They hate that you would notice that they're living and teaching something wrong. They hate that you would be immovable when it comes to sound doctrine. But we need to love the tone police as well. And we do that by taking up these weapons of the cross. 
And so these weapons of the cross, you can't just have the first four and neglect the, the fifth. They all go together. They are the means that God has chosen for engaging in spiritual warfare in the, in the church body. These are the weapons that God has given to us because he has first saved us. We need him always, and to him be all the glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so indebted to you for your word, the clarity of it, Lord. And I hope that I was clear today. I strived to be, God, that your word would come through and that it would do the work that only your word can do, Lord. Your word is mighty and powerful. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in response to the good work that you have begun in us, the good work that we know that you will complete in us because you are faithful and your promises are true. And so you would help us to be ready, to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, to be strong, and to do all those things and everything in love. For you have loved us so completely, Lord, and we are so grateful for the love in which you have loved us. And it is our hope and our desire that even those who would reject what your word says and in so doing so bring us harm in some way or another, that you would give us grace to love them in such a way that we could be your ministers of reconciliation in their life as well too. We need you daily, Lord. We need you every moment. And we thank you for giving us this time to worship you and to learn of you. Help us to continue in it in the rest of this Lord's day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.